Hey everyone, just a quick heads up before this week's show to let you know that there are some swears in it this week. Normally I go through and edit those out, but given the nature of the topic this week and the general passion of our guest, it seemed disingenuous to remove them, so they are in there. Just be warned, not one for listening to with small children in the car. Okay, enjoy! And welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast for another week of, uh, I think, fantastic conversation this week. It is, host-wise, regrettably, just me again this week, um, because Rachel, who was going to be here, really, really wanted to be here, has got a migraine, which is fairly unfortunate timing. Claire was still at work when I last heard from her a very short time ago. And Aid has had eye surgery this week. I think he's had one eye replaced with some sort of robotic laser eye. I don't really know. Hopefully I'll let him use rangefinder cameras in the future. Um, but that doesn't matter because... I have with me this evening a fantastic guest, someone who I am really, really looking forward to talking to, um, and that is Jim Mortram. Jim, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, the pleasure is very much all mine. I first became aware of you as a photographer um, when the idea of photo print day uh, came up, which was, I think, only early February, wasn't it? It's not been yeah. long. Yeah, it was about seven... Probably seven days after the war in Ukraine broke out, um, but before the war broke out, yeah. So, yeah, I had the idea, um, and then war broke out. And the original idea was that it was actually happening in September, um, but instantly had the idea that there was it generates some such a, a quick following. Um, I thought, well, there's enough people here to raise something, yeah. And I think, like most people, I was feeling very uh impotent and very frustrated that i couldn't do anything it's it's just awful seeing something like like this happen again um yeah so to the decision to do it like seven days after i was sat on the couch thinking oh wow there's got to be some way to um to, to push back against nfts i think that's where the idea sort of came from <laughs> you do you know? i think we might come on to <laughs> nfts later and, and we'll 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 talk more about photo print day later sure. um because although there's already been a photo print day there's another one coming which i really want to talk there about is. but yeah. i really want to talk about your work um your book small town inertia is uh, and, in, and i don't use these words like i think it's a pretty incredible piece of work and um i Thank was you lucky enough to basically find a copy of it in John's shed, which I liberated. Let's use that word. Um, and it is one of the best books, one of the best photo books, one of the best books. Let's why differentiate. It's amazing. Um, uh, so that's, I really want to talk about that. But first of all, I want to kind of get into how you even came to be photographing because it seems to have Talk about your life up until you started work on small town inertia. I think that's the best place to start. Sure. Well, well, okay. So what I'll do is, is it's an oft-told story. So I'm going, to conden- <laughs> I'm going to condense. I don't know, maybe fifteen years into about a minute, if I can. It, ne- it never is a minute. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so my, uh, where do I start? Let me think. Hmm. Start with art school. So I was at art school studying fine art painting, 
in the early 90s um had left home and was living the life it was you know uh, it was it was great um probably through the first year i didn't hear much reports of there being anything wrong at home um but as i started my second year i started getting a lot of phone calls from my father who was under an impossible amount of stress and my mother had uh, was is disabled and had been poorly when i was a kid but kind of got a little bit better when i was early teens mid-teens um and then her condition dramatically got worse to the to the point that she was uh, bedridden um dad had a nervous breakdown and couldn't it was fighting so hard to get her the version of disability benefits then and so i was left with like no no choice is the wrong turn of phrase because it wasn't a choice for me it was just what i had to do so i i, I quit my studies and i returned home to be my mum's principal carer um and I was kind of full of the hubris of youth, kind of thinking, well, in six months, I, I'll have sorted this. <laughs> I don't know whether I thought I was some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> like a doctor or something. But was, you know what it's like when you're like 21, 22 or something. I, I, just, I just figured that this will be something that I can fix. And pretty quickly realized that this was an unfixable situation it was about manage management really um managing the situation and you know I, I knew nothing really about what it takes to be a carer or to care for someone and i had to learn really really quickly and essentially what happened was um i learned that time really changes when when you're a carer days bleed into each other and it's, the days are so repetitive um you kind of lose track and i lost track to the extent that you know six weeks became six months became six years became 15 years before i even checked myself uh you, your, your days are so full of you know mum's in a lot of physical and mental pain all day every day and uh, if she sleeps that's that's great but sometimes she doesn't sleep she's having lots of grand mal epileptic seizures sometimes you can have up to like 30 or 40 a day and if you know anything about epilepsy you'll know that grandma seizures are probably the most physically draining they're very violent um so it's kind of like the equivalent of running a marathon every seizure so she's got lots of nerve damage throughout her body um and mentally it's it's taken its toll on her now we're, we're looking at i think close to 30 years of her being bedridden um so yeah i found myself in this situation where I was having to go through a lot of adjustments myself uh, and also appreciate how it was changing my life. Um, I became just as, I guess, marginalized as my mother, my, my father. Uh, stopped really seeing people, stopped having friends, stopped going out. There's no time to go out at all. It's not, you know, it makes, it makes, makes me laugh sometimes that, you know, what is it? Well, I think when I started, I got 48 pounds a week carer's allowance, and that was it. And that was for 30 hours. <laughs> it used to make me laugh because it's 24-7, it's 365. There's no holiday, there's no break. You're just always ready for the next seizure or the next situation. And that, 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 that doesn't count all of the chores. You know, I did all the housework and yada, yada. 
as a carer should um but yeah i suddenly became suddenly i guess came to the realization that i was not doing so good this is after about 15 years and i think that the reason for that is i think this is something a lot of carers find is that you don't really like to put your hand up and say this is affecting me because you feel very selfish if you do that and i couldn't really do that with my dad because he had his own problems and certainly wasn't going to do it with mum and there was no one else so i kind of didn't think about it you, you just push it push it to the side but i, I guess it, it got pretty bad because you know for about a year i didn't speak out loud didn't have anyone to talk to i wasn't really on the internet i had an old dial-up that took about four hours to get a connection and even then there was not much to do online at that point um so yeah i was like self-medicating a little bit got really depressed got really anxious although i didn't know it and i probably had the seeds of the ptsd that i've got now then and didn't know it um and then a, a few like really random chaotic events happens that change my life or change suddenly change the direction of it um i, I like to think of it as just cha chaotic doorways are opening up um one was i saw a, a friend or a friend visited that i'd not seen for years and he had a camera with him um you'd see i was pretty fucked up to put it bluntly um and as he was leaving because i still wasn't talking out loud i just didn't have anything to say to anyone didn't have anything to say full stop but it's, it's quite hard to remember do you know what i mean it's, mm. it's actually hard to remember how how bad it was but i it's not that i've like blanked it out but it was really bad it was really bad um anyway he says um look why don't you just borrow this camera you need to get out you've got to do something you always like really creative um borrow this so i did and uh, something i can't quite put my finger on it what it was it, it wasn't like mystical <laughs> something changed Something changed in me instantly. Um, and I started carrying this camera everywhere. And in probably seven days, I realized that I wasn't interested in photo photographing sheep or trees uh, or the village. I live in quite a rural part of the country in uh, East Anglia. And there used to be probably the, the only person that I had any kind of contact with at that point outside the family was an old guy that lived two doors down from where I'm sat right now. Um, and we didn't speak we just like nodded to each other or i'd raise my hand and he'd raise his hand because i'd see him really early in the morning when i'd go for walks so i mean i say this a lot but if you really want to feel like the last person alive go for a walk in the countryside at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> where there's no street lights and no one and but i'd see him he'd be sat in the front porch of his house and there'd be an old black and white tv and just loads of detritus around him bags and papers and cats he had about 30 feral cats um and then one day i'm just walking past past his porch walking into town to get mum's meds if i remember correctly um and i look up and i see him and he kind of beckons me over so i go up and i've got the camera the next thing i know i'm sat cross-legged at his feet and i look at the camera and he's like you can take pictures i don't mind and he just poured his like 20 years of his life out to me I have no idea why to this day why that and this happened within like eight days of me being loaned this camera um 
and I start making pictures and I, and I take, um, I mean, I'm learning to use the camera. Luckily it was a digital, otherwise I, I couldn't have used it at all. Mm -hmm. I, couldn't have, I couldn't have afforded to get the film process for a start. And I couldn't have taught myself how to use it. But it had been left on manual so I could quite quickly work out how to get an exposure. And, you know, it was at the beginning of my learning. Um, but it was a good, it was kind of like a good way to start being thrown in at the deep end like that. Um, so I made some portraits and some photographs. Um, and I feel different about the camera instantly. I feel that I'm... See, I wasn't in a, I wasn't really in a situation where I had anything to say. There was no ego at all, and I, I kind of, I look back now and I realise that I, I kind of did a fifteen-year, at that point anyway. I'm up to about twenty something now, but <laughs> it was like a fifteen-year uh, MA study in empathy because that's what a carer does. A carer doesn't go in and say you need to do this and boss the situation. A carer goes in and listens. And says what you need um and i had done that for like 15 years and i realized that i was kind of doing that or i wanted to do that through my camera and wh this this old gentleman kind of taught me this in that you know i made some made these photographs i got some prints i took them back to him and he absolutely loved them and that was really nice to see you know he felt he, he was he was i don't know 86 87 at this time and he, he just loved them um, and it continued talking. It turned out that his wife had passed away and he'd moved out of the house and moved into this porch that he'd built. And it brought all the stuff he needed into the porch. He just couldn't be in the house because it reminded him of his late wife. So we kind of had this, this thing in common where we were, we just became like really good fast friends. And then I see him and uh, he tells me he's got cancer and he's got to go to the hospital. He goes into the hospital for an operation which was successful. He gets an infection and he passes away. And I'm like, grief stricken. I'm like the first person that I've been mixed in 15 years. And he's gone. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, what do I do with this? And I, I suddenly realized that in his passing, he'd kind of left me a blueprint of what I do with the rest of my life because I kind of kept him alive in the sense that I was certainly the last person to listen to him in a conversation. And I was absolutely the last person to make his portrait or a photograph of him. And I still had those. And I discovered Flickr and I began sharing, this is way longer than three minutes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, you it said is, one to be in with, but yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is 15 years, isn't it? Um, so yeah, I begin sharing stuff on Flickr in its very early days and I get some feedback and I kind of study myself how to use a camera at the same time as learning the history of photography, at the same time as kind of really organically just beginning to go out into my community and meeting people as I do in life camera had no part in it whatsoever still doesn't um and ultimately it was people inviting me to come into their homes you know I, I i didn't know what a blog was i found out what a blog was i thought this is great this is almost like i can have a digital version of the picture post or, in, or a, a broadsheet or the sunday times magazine all of which i loved for photography um and began publishing like episodic um stories um 
um like before i know it, it it's got loads of attention and and here we are <laughs> yeah. but yeah. that's that's really how i started so i think it's important to stress that you know a lot of people think um the camera is going to do the work for them or maybe looking at other photographers is going to do the work for them but i guess my philosophy is is the life you you live does the work for you mm -hmm. i wouldn't be the photographer that i am or the person that i am if i hadn't been a carer for 15 years yeah you know and at the same time as getting this camera the same time as meeting wh and making these pictures um just to go back to the very start bbc4 um had a season of documentaries on photography so i got this real quick injection of i think they showed the genius of photography by jerry badger um they had that great stephen polyakov play shooting the past i don't know if you've seen that but it's incredible it's on youtube brilliant all about how a, a, a photograph resonates through time um so you make it for the moment but it also exists in the future for when people discover it that really helps me. There was a great documentary on James Revilius, and instantly I became really infatuated with his work because he worked local. So kind of all of these things are happening within like a month period. Um, and of course, the, the, the third, uh, I guess, doorway into what would be the rest of my life is the Conservative Party got in and austerity starts. So yeah, those three things all coinciding. See, it, when you think that you're kind of like finished in life, you know, you never know what's around the next corner. And that's the thing, because I was kind of really depressed thinking, well, well, what happens to my life? <laughs> I guess I was 35. Hmm. And I thought, well, where's my life gone? I, I really wanted to be a painter. I wanted to do this, I wanted to do that. And, and just holding that camera, it suddenly, it was the most natural thing in the world. I didn't have to try really uh, in that i didn't have to find a voice the life that i'd had had kind of sorted that out for me mm. um so your work well really from the get-go by the sounds of it your work has been about these people the people in your village the people that you've interacted with and that's that as i say it's, the culmination is not this book because the culmination makes it sound like it's finished and it isn't this is an ongoing thing for you uh -huh. your, yeah. your 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 small town inertia um project i guess is the right word for it is it's is just my life it's just our lives that's yeah. the thing a lot of people like to have like projects or series and i'm i'm very straight about this in that it's just life yeah. there is no project there is I, I don't make any other photographs outside small town inertia i had to call it something otherwise mm -hmm. <laughs> you know you've got to call something something yeah. um but you're right I, I did find what i was doing really within two weeks of first touching a camera for the first time in my life mm. and that, that was through the experience with wh and that i realized that i wanted to kind of kind of twofold really one i wanted to pay homage to people mm -hmm. and give them the opportunity to have their say and i was at the same time very angry at the portrayal of people like carers or people on benefits um the way they trade in the media and i realized that without documenting people's actual lives in a very humanist uh tradition we're just numbers we're just pie charts we're just statistics and i thought that that was 
still think that's very unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's two aspects to it that seem so important to me. The, the first one is just of allowing these people to be seen by by you, to be seen by anybody, for somebody to be there going, I see you, I see the state, I see your situation. And then taking that and putting it in front of people who need to see this, because as you mm. said, it's very easy to... Um, to just you read a number or you see a description of all oh, you know benefits scroungers disabled disabled people you you know, whatever you can yeah. just wash it off but it is the first thing that pops into your mind and there's a there's a reason for that because that's been the mantra of the media for forever yeah really yeah you know you you don't see the 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 a front cover of a tabloid with a carer that's given their life up to care for a loved one whilst getting paid a slave wage which kind of works out to a pound an hour Mm-hmm. You don't see that on the front page, but you do see the stories that are kind of salacious. And it, that was probably the ultimate causation why I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and why my community have been so responsive in doing it. Uh, I, I would say, or oh, maybe, maybe I'd add to what you're saying about seeing people. It's maybe more about listening to people, mm. to, to hear people. I, I find that my role as photographer it's kind of down the list of of what i do is it's a it's like a camera itself it's um it's a tool it's a it's kind of like a device in that my memory uh, of my childhood is like i can remember finding old copies of the picture post my grandparents and really liking the format of pictures and text or images and story because i could read the read the information but then i could see it as well so i could really nail down what i was looking at and these i think these were picture posts from around around yeah around the second world war and that stuck with me and i didn't know it had stuck with me until i maybe until about five years into actually doing what i'm doing and i i kind of put these two strands of stuff that had gone on in my life together and realized oh christ is that where i got it from because obviously you know, I became aware of other uh, other wonderful humanist photographers, um, like the his- the whole history of British documentary. But I didn't know that when I started, so there had to have been some some influence, no matter how like in my subconscious it was. And I know that it was picture post when I when I look back. I was so spend. You know, if I if I get dropped off there by my parents, I'd probably spend the whole Sunday just pouring over these magazines looking at images and text so in, in my head it seems um well again i think it, it's the experience that you have in your life that what is what does the work behind the camera and having had a really rough time i kind of just asked myself a really simple question and that's you know if somebody had made a photograph of me at my worst and it was bad it was really bad but they didn't show what came before that or came after that and they ha- and they gave no description to what they were photographing what would any what would it amplify what would it say to anybody it would yeah. just so somebody that looked pretty fucked up well okay but what were the causations what's the context what's the story um and i, I guess i've just applied that to everybody i've ever photographed from day from day one everybody i photograph i've kept in touch with for example yeah and, and speaking yeah I think that is one of the things about the book which makes it so effective because um, it it can be very easy for um, documentary photography, particularly of, of 
groups of people, groups of individuals who are other in some way, shape or form mm. um, to become an experience when it's out of context that is um, be very voyeuristic or, or um, I had another word and it's completely gone from my head, but where you can just look at the pictures and and just kind of um, vicarious, that's it. You're kind of getting mm. some vicarious, like, oh, this is, I'm enjoying this work because I'm looking at these pictures, look at these people. But by having the people's um, stories, the things that they have shared with you mm. alongside those pictures, you cannot do that. It mm. is impossible because they are no longer, oh, look at these people, look at these pictures of people who I don't know and whose lives are very different from mine. Mm. You read it and as much as you can, you are you are dragged, whether you like it or not, into their world, or at least a a glimpse into an understanding of their world, which you can't you can't get from just a picture. That's um, interesting because that's by design. You know, when I was said just now about uh, that, the photographs perform a, a, a function. They're a tool. They're a device. Well, their role. The, the reason. Um, I guess the reason that I make photographs, one is is that, yeah, I, I want to document what's happening. But, you know, if you share online, you, you've got to compete against like a tsunami of images, like never before. Um, so they have to be good enough to make people stop. Mm. That's why I wanted to be a good photographer. That's why I worked really hard to be a better photographer, because I figured that if I can make a really great photograph, I could maybe stop someone long enough to, to do what I really want them to do, which is to experience a testimony. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the whole thing is, uh, I guess you could say that as a photographer, I'm an amplifier. That's, that's what I, I get. I get a signal in and I, and I boost it and then I send it out to a wider community. And it is about that transference or that illumination of experience from one strata of people of which I'm actually a member, you know, so there is no parachuting in for me. There is no, um leaving at the end of the day yeah exactly there is there is absolutely none of that at all um more than you know you know <laughs> it's because i'm in constant contact with everybody um so the photography is like one fifteenth of a second but everything else has been over a decade of yeah constantly being there and they are for me as well it's not it's not one-way traffic i found that um, the best way for me to work is to be myself, and I think I, I can't do anything else. I, I, I can't do anything else online or offline. I have to be the same person all the time. I talk to everybody, no matter where they come from in life, exactly the same. Uh, and I, I think that that's like something really important to bear in mind if you are a photographer, this idea that maybe a camera is like a vip pass or, or or gives you like special dispensation to behave in a certain way or that you that your rights are more important than anyone else's maybe your right to photograph is more important than than the world around you and i i think quite the different i think for me that i feel duty bounds to make the work but i also feel in service of the people that i from my community that i collaborate with mm -hmm. you know um yeah um Following on from that, because there's, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but I'll, let's talk about the photography specifically. Because you said that you you wanted to make images that that made people stop to look at them. That you wanted to make striking, um, beautiful images. You know, just 
great photographs. And oh, can I jump in? Because you just reminded me of something that, that I really wanted to say to you. Uh -huh. This thing of contextless work. Mm. Okay, so you see, you see, uh, um, you know, your 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 standard photograph, say poverty. Mm -hmm. I think that the the ratio of appreciation of art and and empathy is back to front. So people kind of see the photograph, but they don't see what the photograph's of. So they can see a, a, like a really beautiful, well, well, well made, technically, uh, well framed, well composed. But because there's no context, they can only really respond to the photograph. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the, the language around photographs like that is, is what a great photograph. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't really care of anything less than it being a, a good photograph. It should be a good, good photograph. Right, just like I say this all the time, like a plumber, you don't praise the plumber for fitting the sink and the sink working. That's his job. Yeah. Right. I mean, you might politely say, "Oh, you know," but there's no award shows for plumbers as far. There should be, shouldn't there? I, I think know. this is a real. But, I think I why why are they not? I think because it's well, that's the job. You, you, that's what they're paid to do. It's it, so for me as a photographer, I'm like, well, look, let me take care of doing the best job I can do. Um, but that's not the important element of this. The important element of this is the person in the picture. So yeah. when you look at those photographs, I want it's all about um, taking all of these different um, ways of amplifying. So somebody that, and this happens in real life, in, in, in the sense that there's people that live one side of the street literally to the other side of the street and they don't know each other exists and they live completely different lives it's a very odd market town that i make the work in um and i think that where i make the work is is representative of the entire country so these pictures effectively could be made in any town in any village north or south it doesn't matter what matters is humanizing and giving voice sorry damn it i shouldn't say that not giving voice but amplifying the voice of people that have been screaming for years mm -hmm. you, you've got to listen to us yeah. so the there's kind of like this odd um mishmash of things happening but regardless of, of all of these different mecha like mechanics of of how you amplify i've never been concerned with people kind of going oh god your art's great you're such a great photographer I, I don't I don't really think about that. I just know that it needs to be good enough to get people's eyes and ears and mm -hmm. and hearts into the story. Yeah. So it, it's yeah, it's not artistic expression. Okay, well that said, sense. I'm now going to yeah. throw that slightly out the window because because the thing is, I <laughs> The analogy for the plumber is a terrible analogy because with the plumber it's a binary thing. It works or it doesn't work. But photography there are, photography is not binary. And I, I, I do want to make the point that yeah. for people who haven't seen your work yet, your photography is fantastic. The the Thank work you. you are producing is really it's beautiful photography. The subject matter is you you're not doing formal portraits that they are I, how would you it's documentary photography it's candid it's but it's um it's it's really beautifully done and and, and that is not something that just anyone competent can do it is more than competence so the thing that i i want 
to know about is mm. given that you picked up a camera fairly late mm-hmm. and you got straight into that um what do you think that it, it was just and obviously you you had an interest in the background in art from the very beginning so obviously you had a passionate way but mm. there are not many people i know um who can given the amount of time that you've been shooting or indeed there are not many people i know who can shoot and create pictures that look like that that are as well done as that is is it you you make beautiful work in and not just given easy subject matter to work with you mm. it's really hard to find the right words to use and i, th- but, I think i know i know what you're saying and I, honestly it really is a lot of um okay so when you talk about understanding visual language i was lucky mm. that i started all all told i studied art for seven years and that included the history of painting and i was studying fine art painting i wanted to be a painter so with that i understood composition you know and i understood comp- composition young uh, and you don't forget that and i guess i took that into i don't know what let me think how long have i been watching movies from seven so from seven to 35 what always been an avid um watch your cinema and luckily grew up in an era that there was some amazing cinema made um and so i was very I, I wouldn't have been able to have said this at the time but i was completely obsessed with cinematography you know so many films um in for like i'm a massive film noir fan i love um you know i'm, I'm one of those people that like if a film had subtitles or was black and white i'd want to watch it i wouldn't not watch it so i'd had visual things coming into my brain all my life and so when i picked up a camera um i guess that the the way i composed was a reflection of my diet like my my visual diet through that and i didn't feel the need to look at other photographers and say well that's good i want to do that i kind of just had my own way of doing it based you know filtered through years of watching cinema and years yeah. of um of doing that and in fact when it came to other photographers what i would do was i would get in compellingly drawn to n- not only the work um i kind of made myself a promise that whenever i look at another photographer's work i don't look at it as a photographer because i know that that's not what any photographer wants a photographer doesn't want someone looking at a picture of whatever it doesn't matter um and the person to be going oh i wonder what camera you use well that's 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 wide open isn't it or what what shutter speed is that they want them to see the fucking picture they don't want to kind of like work out the the tech that all of that should be forgotten because mm-hmm. you don't think of these things when you look at a painting you don't go what brush did uh Hockney use when he did mm. that what, what what kind of paint did he use you don't even imagine the painter stood behind the easel six foot away for a hundred hours or however long it's taken. You just see the portrait. And I knew that I, I wanted to make photographs like that. That was for sure. Um, so I guess all of these things are, are kind of happening at once. Uh, I mean, we, I kind of learned how to use a camera just by trial and error over the first six months. And then when we finally got a bit of an internet connection, 
like five minutes on YouTube. It's, it's pretty. There was also a camera shop. Actually, I should mention this. There was a, there used to be a, a, a camera shop in town. Sadly, it's closed, but I still keep in contact with the owner. He's a dear friend. Um, and there'd be like lots of old photographers in there, and I'd go in there and I'd chat to them, and they'd be like, "Oh, you know, do this, do that, do that." And like anything, you you're as good as the advice you choose to take. You know, so there was a lot of like knowing when somebody was didn't know what they were talking about, or every now and then you'd meet someone and they'd be like, look, if you're using a digital camera, that's kind of like me back in the day shooting slide film. So you want to make sure you underexpose. So I kind of figured out if I spot meters, a highlight and just stop down a little bit. When it came to using Photoshop or whatever to actually get the image, um, it wasn't blown out. I, I knew the one thing right from day one was I, I couldn't stand the, the aesthetic of blown out pictures or whites being, it just looks really sloppy and messy. I didn't like it. Um, and of course, when I first started, I had a monitor that was broken. It had like a green color cast. I tell this story a lot, sorry, but, so I couldn't do color. So I just did black and white. And by the time I got a monitor that worked, I was, I don't know, six years in. And yeah. I think it was one of those happy, another one of those happy accidents. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of happy accidents, and it's a lot of um, how do you say? It is a lot of happy accidents. Like to get the camera the same month that WH felt like beckoning me to his porch. The same month that BBC Four have this documentary series on photography. The same month that the Conservative Party get in and austerity starts. So, so that sort of stuff you can't plan for but i guess what you can plan for is is when you do find that thing that reboots you because that's what it was like for me it was like touching a, a live wire that i was zapped back into being 20 again and i i just became obsessed and still am yeah. and obsessed i like to think for quite moral reasons i'm not like i say it's a I mean, I'm I'm kind of weird. I know that, right? <laughs> I'm not I'm not making work because I want people to go, "Oh, you're a great photographer." I, I'm making work because I feel like it's fucking got to be made. These stories have to be told. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's not a joke. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. It's I found my calling, and I, I guess for a lot a large part of my life, I wondered if I'd ever find that one thing that was of me, and I feel very lucky that I did. A lot of people don't, you know, or they they find the wrong thing. And yeah, so I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky in that respect. Yeah. Uh, I never, I never take that for granted ever. Let's talk more about um, what the way you approach your work. So, for like, for mm. people who haven't seen it, it's very much long form mm. documentary work um, with a how many how many people are there in total? Uh, I don't know, you know off the top of your head. It's fine. But a, a, yeah. a, several people in your community, families, individuals, um, yeah. who you at this point have been photographing for years and going there. Mm. How how in the first place, I know you said you just went out and talked to people, but um, mm. given that a lot of the people that you are talking to and photographing are people who, for various different reasons, are withdrawn from 
public life mm. largely and um, mm. that's a big part of the problem that they're having whether it's through ill health or blindness or social circumstances mm. um how did you get to engage with these people in the first place already well, it was just being friendly <laughs> it's that simple i mean i when i when i really first started i was like after wh passed away i started maybe staying in town a little bit longer when i'd do errands and in the early days almost everybody i met was either at the pharmacy or the bus queue or walking past the bus queue and like after a year of not speaking out loud i suddenly became really really chatty but that was coupled with an intense desire to listen to people mm -hmm. um so for example like like david who's blind so I, I i first met his mother just in the street um just as you meet people you know it's like i'm sure we all have like these like brief chance encounters with people that we speak to um i guess the fundamental different thing with me is i would carry and and do other than being in lockdown and covid carry a camera everywhere and I would never talk with someone with the idea of photographing them. I was just really pleased to be talking to people and to have conversations again. And invariably people would say, well, what's the camera for? It's not like a regular occurrence to see somebody walking around with a camera on their shoulder. Um, still isn't in town. Phones, yeah. CCTV, yeah, but not not a camera. So when they'd ask, I'd say, well, look, you know, I'm thinking of doing this thing. It's like a blog. It's you know, if, if someone's got something on their mind and they, they feel like no one's listening, um, I, I think I've got a way that I can show people and, and amplify that. Um, everybody was like, yeah, God, where, where do I start? <laughs> I think the thing that is most often overlooked is not listening to people is probably the cause of, not all, but a huge amount of problems that this country's faced over the last 10, 15 years, ranging from Brexit to, um, the list is almost endless. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and it also makes people very susceptible to political and media influence, I would say. Um, I mean, the greatest trick, I wasn't gonna say the devil ever played, but I'll say the Tories, just just the same thing, um, is getting poor people to blame other poor people mm. For being poor it, it, it's so unbelievably dark shakespearean mm, <laughs> fuckery yeah. um because so many so many people i've met that have got nothing blame their neighbor yeah and uh yeah anyway i'm, I'm digressing no no that that's um, all, that that stratification that happened in the late sort of noise and yeah. I, I, um and i think david in one of the pieces in your book um he says you know disabled people didn't cause the recession it wasn't people in it, wheelchairs yeah. who caused the recession yeah. it was bankers being greedy and yes. looking to make a fast but yeah. that's what happened and yet yeah. it, it was pinned on people with disabilities they were the ones that got punished and yeah. it's yeah well okay so i'm gonna rein it back a little bit so you're talking about how, how do these pictures get made they get made because i meet people as strangers and i am who i am and invariably we end up kind of being friends and 
with French, okay, so you take any, you, you remove the camera from the situation and you, you just talk about relationship. Well, what's a relationship? A relationship that's successful is, is give and take, right? In that I was never reserved about sharing with people what my life was like and how, how hard it has been, um, which I think makes people more prone to share with you if, if you're seen to share with them. I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on... <laughs> <laughs> the mechanics of relationships but i figure this this must be what it is just like we're talking now right um i think the more personal you are and the more in genuinely interested you are it's like it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked if i was only interested so i could make pictures people aren't stupid they can smell that shit a mile off it, they knew that i genuinely cared and i know you know i can safely say now that I know that they all care about me and I guess sometimes um, sometimes you can be making pictures within five minutes sometimes I've waited six years everybody's different there's there's no cookie cutter that, that there's no template that fits over everybody there's no kind of like quick cheat rules of this some people take a long time to trust and some people um just want to unburden themselves of of the stress that they've been having so there's a picture in the book of shawnee it's a close-up and he's crying i made that after being in his flat for five minutes it was a very intense situation um carl who's also in the book he didn't he wasn't ready to to be photographed for six years and then when he was ready i, I couldn't stop him <laughs> i couldn't couldn't stop him like ask me when are you coming when are you coming and I, th I guess what i'm getting at is is that to make pictures where you can become invisible you have to be trusted hmm. and you have to have um a sensible system of how you do things so normally the system is i'll arrange to meet up on social media or phone or text or whatever um so there's no surprise visit so i don't just turn up um but when i turn up we'll all already talked about you know how they feel what what do they want to do 80 percent of the time i won't even touch a camera we'll just have a chat and talk or maybe i'll make an interview um the remaining 20 percent, it will be look do you want to make a portrait today do you want to sit down and just do that or do you just want to go about your day and so i'll be in the corner or wherever just hovering about making some documentary stuff and they all know what it is because i show them the work so they the kind of and they've got an understanding of what the purpose of the photography is and where it goes and all of that um but really the the key core element to it is is being really genuine and really and really caring and really empathetic so it's like if someone says oh, i just want to chat today or can you help me fill this form out we do that there's no pressure there's no pressure at all um and that works and it fits with the long form thing as well because it's like everybody in the stories knows that these are stories it's not the cover of a book it's many chapters and it's about mm. that journey and it's a journey we've all gone on and continue to go on i mean i'm halfway through book two so um and there's three planned um but i'm not there as a photographer i'm there as as me mm. i think i think that, that's the easiest way of putting it and they know me they don't know me as a photographer something weird did happen at the start it went from me meeting strangers in the street and one by one 
kind of being invited into people's homes and the first time I was invited into someone's home everything changed you know I couldn't you can't be that intimate on the street and people quite often can't be that relaxed in the street so it was Stuart that first invited me uh, into his home and it was like again it was like this door that opens and the light went off and I was like oh this is well, I didn't know what environmental portraiture was or such a documentary or what any of these labels you can put on it. Um, and it, it just felt right. It's the only way I can put it. It felt personally right because I could actually, you know, hear. I can remember, like Stuart said to me, oh, dear boy, you must come around for tea. I can't hear you. There's all this noise. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I'm sat, you know, um, in his in his living room making a portrait of him and it was so much calmer and so he was so much more relaxed and we were able to have like a conversation so that was another like thing i stumbled into just letting i mean i've let everything happen really really organically but i've been tenacious with it as well I've been tenacious with my uh, like voracious appetite in learning and looking at other photographs and looking at like the generational uh, change in in the way people photograph their communities. I took a lot of inspiration as I went on from the Exit Photography Group, um, survival programs in Britain's inner cities. A book that had a massive impact on me. That was the first book that I saw that actually had text and statistics and photographs, and that left a big imprint. I also saw how this type of um, communal documentary photography kind of went away through the 90s. And I think that that maybe, maybe helped me. I mean, I certainly had a lot of ex-pro photojournalists say to me, I haven't seen work like this made for 15 years. And I think it's because magazines kind of dried up and no one was commissioning the work. And, you know, I'm not a professional photographer. I don't have to worry about getting a commission. This is... This is why I say it's not a project and I'm not like a photographer. It's my, it's my life. There's just a camera involved and it's our life. Um, yeah, but to get, to get those pictures, really, the it's really about the trust. I'm trusted and you, you don't click your fingers and get that. It's like any relationship. Um, and I, I think that's... I think that's something that photographers should think about. I mean, obviously not everybody's got the perfect storm of ingredients that I have. Um, like being a carer and and everything else involved in me that makes me in this position to, to do this. But I do think that photographers should repeatedly ask themselves, am I... Am I being a photographer now, and I'm uh, that's taking away from like who I am or how I would conduct myself? Um, what would I and what wouldn't I do to get the picture? I think these are really important questions. What do I want to do with my camera? Do I want to um, do I want to use it as like a sword and and just attack the uh, the world around me and use it as like a lot of contemporary street photography? I think is like a human safari is what can i get with my camera not what can i do with my camera um so yeah i'm like really excited about the possibility of the and i see it happening actually there's some amazing photographers countrywide that are 
pushing back, they're resisting the narrative, uh, they're enabling their communities. And there was a big period in British photography where that wasn't happening. And it's really cool because it's needed. Yeah. Because if there's no if there's no opposition to that. Um, you know, if, if the only place you get your information is single point media, so let's say it's the Daily Mail, I'm not even going to say the scum, or BBC News or Sky News, and that's it. Right. So you wake up in the morning, you go, right, give me my dose of reality and I'll appropriate it. And that will be my understanding of things I've got no experience of. If that's the only thing you've got, it's no fucking wonder so many people are so lost and so um, uh, kind of steeped in mistruth. Mm -hmm. yeah. and that's where I think a photographer can do their best, perform to their best. Yeah, because really, it, it doesn't have to just be about what you see. It can be about this amplification of other people's lived experience. Yeah, uh, that what you talked about there with with the fact that it has been such a long term building of trust. I think that really comes through in the work. There is an intimacy to the work. I, I think you used the phrase "become invisible" in there, and that is what it feels like. A, a lot of the pictures there, they feel candid to the point where not only can you not only are you not thinking about oh the photographer was there with the camera this but it's almost hard to imagine that a photographer was there because mm. you think if a photographer was there it would have influenced this scene and this scene wouldn't look like this but you have managed to remove yourself mm. or remove the the obstruction of you as photographer so completely by this long-term thing that um and obviously this situation whenever you're taking other people's pictures there's always there's always a, a position of trust you know, you're you're you are going forward and representing that person's image and this mm. is obviously massively more so in your case because they are such intimate pictures and they are they you are in people's houses photographing their lives as honestly uh, as you possibly can um and whilst the photographs are beautiful life is life and that you know these are not all beautiful pictures of people looking at their best and smiling for the cameras they're people caught living their life um how do you manage that side of things how do you make sure that you that you don't put a picture in front you know a picture out there that one of the people you're photographing looks like and go well i don't like that i that that makes me feel bad because you've caught me at a moment. Because like, there are pictures there of people when they the facial expressions are contorted or whatever, but it, it never feels exploitative. But how did you manage to do that without it becoming so? Well, it is kind of like um, it is a collaboration. So I'm always showing people the. Mm. If you use a digital camera, you can just flip it around and go look. <laughs> so that everybody knows what's being made and. The real see the thing I think that gets maybe overlooked or or isn't considered is well ask yourself why people are inviting me into their homes in the first place. What's the first thing that I approach them with, or what's the first thing I explain to them? The first thing I explain to them is I ask them what their story is, what they want to talk about, so they have ownership of of the work that we'll do. I don't say, well, let's let's pick this and we'll do this. I ask people, what what is it? What is it that you want to talk about? Because there is a story there. There is context there. These aren't just standalone photographs for people to, you know, 
fill in with their own preconceived prejudices. These are amplifications of these people, my community's lived experience. Um, and so I'm, I'm there to do that. I'll give you a really good, I'll give you like a really good example. I was photographing Simon for um, uh, his story about epilepsy. And he was going out to a gym to, to work out and try and get himself fit, which was admirable. Um, and we had a conversation before along the lines of, look, what happens if you have a seizure? Do you want me to photograph it or do you, do you want me to leave it? And he says, no, photograph it. Anyway, we go along to the gym. I fully don't expect him to have a seizure. And he has a tonic uh, epileptic seizures. Now, the tonic epileptic seizures, there's no warning at all. There's no sign that there's going to be a seizure. He literally just falls down like he's been shot in the head, dead weight, and lands on whatever's around him. And he's on a, so we're at the gym, he's on a treadmill, and he's kind of like jogging on the treadmill. Has an atonic seizure. And I've actually got a frame where my hands are going down to catch him, and I'm still holding the camera, and I press the shutter, and it's like blurred with him falling. And he hits, hit, he kind of lands on the treadmill, which is, of course, spinning. And it um, gives him a really horrible gash on his head and his face. And he's, he's out. He's unconscious. Now, I'd promised him that I'd photograph this. But I've also been a carer to an epileptic for 15 years. So, yeah, I put him in recovery first. That's the first thing that I did. But then I heard his voice saying, you've got, you have to photograph. So I photograph it. He comes around and the first thing he says is he looks up at me and says did you get that <laughs> he's covered in blood right and i'm in shock even though i've probably seen a hundred thousand really bad seizures at home this is the first time i've ever seen an atonic seizure and you know he was banged up it was shocking right mm. um the first thing he says is did you get it and i'm like yeah he goes well let's have a look I show him because there, that's it. That's what it looks like. I said, "Are you sure you want me to share these?" He said, "Well, fucking course, I want you to share these. Mm -hmm. How the fuck can you do a story about epilepsy and not show me having an ep epileptic mm -hmm. seizure? If it's just a picture of me sat on my sofa, right? All right, that might show one thing, but it certainly doesn't show you what epilepsy looks like." I had the same experience with my mother in in lockdown. She never showed any interest at all in having her story shared. Then COVID came along, and she said. I think the time isn't right. I want to talk about what happens to me. She was uh, abducted and raped when she was a child and that affected her entire life, obviously. Um, and also her epilepsy. And she said, she, well, she asked me, can you photograph me having a seizure? I said, well, sure, if you, if you want me to. And she's, her reason for it was twofold. One, she wanted to show people the life of somebody that had been denied PIP personal independence payment as after the switch from DLA um, and declared fit for work, <laughs> which is so unbelievably uh, obscene and absurd at the same time. It took me a year to fight to get it awarded for life with the admission of a clerical error. In the meantime, it was eight months of mum just asking me to kill her. She just couldn't handle the stress and the embarrassment. Anyway, so I make this some photographs of her having a seizure. And I show her, and she, she's like full of wonder and says, so that's what it looks like. I've had this thing for 
72 years and I never knew. Everybody else always knew what it looked like, but now I know. And she was really pleased. So the thing about showing people in situations that are real, that's what I'm there to do. Now, there's a caveat to this in that, yeah, I edit really, really empathetically. So there's certain, there's some pictures that say it or show it, but don't say and show it in the same way as other pictures. And I've always been very, I've always trusted my gut and I've always like replayed that conversation I had with myself about if somebody was just to make one photograph of me out of context, how would I feel about that? I think that that kind of life experience I take into when I edit, most of the editing I do is in camera, but occasionally there's a photograph that I'll, I'll, I'll find and I'll look at it and I'll go, well, does that say it, even though it might be more profound, it might be more explicit, does that say it as well as one that's maybe not as explicit for want of a better word? And quite often the one that's less explicit does it better. So what I'm saying is, is I've got, I don't know, tens of thousands of photographs, um, but I'm very mindful to pick ones that not only fit the chronological narrative of a story and also fit the testimony so that the written quotes. I mean, there's been there's been occasions where I've actually had photographs. Where I said, well, I'm not going to use that. Mm -hmm. And I've shown the person they're like, no, <laughs> that's the one use that. And then I have to defer to their judgment. You know, so there's sometimes not squabbles, but there's certainly discussions about, you know, um, is 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 it is it um, is it is it the right one? But thankfully, I mean, I've never had anyone say no when I've asked them if I can photograph them. And I've never had anyone unhappy with any photograph I've ever made of them because it's such a collaboration. Mm. You know, literally when we're, when I'm making the work obviously with the exception of david because he's blind um but i described them to him you know it's, it's the only way we can do it um and for, for david it's there's so many other parts to his story you know and the the amplification of his story just um whether it's me recording him singing or or the audio podcast that i do or the, the written stuff. I mean, he's he's over the moon because one of his favourite actors is Michael Sheen, and uh, Michael wrote the postscripts in the latest Cafe Royale books. So <laughs> David's just absolutely made up about that. You won't believe it. So I get I get to say uh, Michael Sheen sends his love to David, and <laughs> it's just yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um. You. This is your life. This photography is your life, and yeah. these people are part of your life. Um, and I know just from reading the stories in this book how much they affected me. Does it's hard? These people, mm. for for various diverse reasons, have had really hard times. And the the book, if you're a feeling human being, will reduce you to tears at times because it's. I mean, there is hope in there as well. I, I mean, that's one of the things that I find most amazing is that the, these people who frequently have just got real shitty, shitty lives, and yet they still hope and they still have yeah. hope. And how, given that you already are 
just from your own life and what's being asked of you of your own life, which is more than a lot of, more than most people ever give. You're also taking on all of these other people's story, other people's lives, listening to them, taking all that onto your shoulders as well, because that's what being empathetic is. You're kind of, you're, how do you, how do you manage that personally? Does it weigh you down how do you stop it from how do you stop it from leaving you just feeling wretched all the time from just seeing this all around you that's a good observation i was asked that question maybe a year in and again the the hubris of innocence let's say rather than ignorance although there's a large part of ignorance involved in this um my answer would have been oh i'm i'm just full steam ahead which is what I did for 10 years and then finally got diagnosed with uh, PTSD mm. <laughs> as a result of both being a carer and and essentially working non-stop. You know, I, I get three to six hours a week away from my carer duties to, to photograph in. But every night I'm talking to someone. I mean, when David's mother passed away, that was probably 14 months where we'd talk every night on the phone and it was pitiful it was so sad it mm. just, just wanted to die um so yeah it, I, I had no real knowledge of like how it could affect my mental health until it did and yeah it really did i had a really tough like couple of years where i was having essentially i had like 18 months of one long panic attack it was unreal um, and all the symptoms of a panic attack every day and I got something called derealization where you, essentially uh, I talked to my doctor, my doctor's great, she's called Dr. Carey which fits her perfectly because she's so caring. Um, she said look you can only fit a pint of stress in a pint pot and you're trying to fit an ocean so your subconscious is kind of uh, it's like a fight or flight reaction so I'd feel like not quite here, but here. And I was still going out and working on, like I worked on probably the hardest story I did with um, Helena and her enduring two rapes and Carl's story of child abuse, all whilst having panic attacks. Um, and it got, but also there's another component, which is I had, I, I had something that um, is, it's called, uh, it's like a health phobia. I've had so many stories of things to do with health and obviously being a care and dealing with that. I could stub my toe and I was dying. <laughs> it's either that or it was, it was the age that I was. All of a sudden, everything became, I'm dying. And being a typical man, I didn't go to the doctors, left it for like 18, 18 months, eventually went to the doctors with my girlfriend, bless her, and said, I think I'm dying. I was convinced if I went to the doctors, the doctor was going to go, yeah, you've got four months to live. I went to the doctors. She said, right, breathe in, breathe out, do this, do that. She said, you're fine. You're going to live till you're 90. You're amazing. For amazing, Nick. You're fine. What I suggest is take this, take that. And so, yeah, that's what I've done. I, I take this and I take that. And I, uh, I came out of it with, but I, I'm not the sort of person that, is 
I feel any stigma to it or any shame to it because everybody I know has had mental health problems. So the way that I've kind of come through it, and I, I'm, I still deal with it every day. Some days are better than others. Some days are really hard. Some days I don't even think about it. But what it had, I wanted to use it constructively. That experience. So when I'm when I'm working with someone like Tilney One, who's a paranoid schizophrenic and suffered greatly at the hands of austerity cuts to dealing with mental health uh, provision and care. Again, you just use your life. I, I have something, I mean, it's crazy how much I have in common with everybody that I photograph. You know, be it, I mean, what are the chances that I'd be the son of somebody that was raped when they were a child? Gang rapes, no less. And, you know, I meet a girl and her mum in a laundrette and she's been raped. So when she learns that I'm the son of someone that's been raped, she feels that she can talk to me. And it's, it's just on and on. And I, and I meet all of these people as strangers, but what it, what it teaches, what it's taught me is, you know, we kind of go through life viewing everybody as other or someone, someone else. And through this process, I realized that everybody has a story. And we have more in common with people than we dare dream. And it, I, I guess like post Thatcher and post the death of society and the rise of the individual being everything and 25 years of fucking reality TV and everybody's going to be a superstar or an astronaut. You can be anything that you want, even though poverty is the biggest dream killer alive. Um, there's nothing really, really better than community. Nothing. There's nothing better than like I get asked quite a, a lot. What, what advice would you give to a photographer? And like the first thing I'd say is go check on your neighbour. You know, go and see how they're doing. That's so much more important than than anything else. Anything that you want to learn technically with a camera, you you can literally do in 15 minutes on YouTube. It's all there. It's not hard. It's really not. It's, the cameras are really quite easy to use. Those technical instructions, though, won't teach you how to have empathy. So you need to look. At, you need to look into yourself. I think a lot. Where, depending on what kind of work that you make, obviously. But um, you know how you approach people and how you think of other people and how you care about other people. That you know, you might feel like, well, why should I care about anyone? Why? Why should I? And I think it's because that makes community function better, which in turn makes society function better. Um, and somewhere along the line, I think that we've we've lost sight of that. I'd, I'd say post Thatcher, it happened. We had like a few years uh, with Labour that had some shocking policies. I didn't vote for Tony Blair because I thought he was a psychopath when I first looked at his devilish eyes and then came the war on terror and i thought well i was right um and i'm again i'm politically homeless but i've never seen anything like that which we're living under at the moment mm. it's oh i used to i i used to watch spitting image and i used to think god these characters are wicked spitting image is made now and it it's not even as good as reality, mm. but the, the, their characters unto themselves. And 
the disparity and the poverty and it's been going on for so fucking long and we've blamed everybody but the ones making the decisions that's what blows my mind that's how good the the misinformation or the disinformation is or or it's kind of like all of thatcher's dreams have finally come true communities have become so completely eroded um i don't know I, I don't know if it's things like the death of the village pub and like you know when alcohol became really cheap and you didn't go to the pub so you had no community hub in the in a town or a village uh plus it's so expensive so people kind of over the last certainly within my lifetime have really exist at home they don't really know anyone around them and once that ball gets rolling that's a hard that's a hard situation to reverse mm -hmm. but i think that we should i think if we want to progress and i think we want we want a country that we can all live in and be happy about we need to do that yeah and i think photography plays a really big part in that i mean a lot of people just look at photography as you know uh, art or like a, a happy pastime and it is those things but we did lose sight of the of, of the the function of photography in community and amplifying stories and being a resistance to the narrative or the story that we're all told i think maybe that's why the book resonates because for a lot of people they they don't know what the lives of others are like and maybe they've got like a tight circle of friends but that's as far as it goes and the book gives them a it kind of grabs people and it gives them a good hard shake mm. and, and but at the same time it kind of embraces them you know the, the the people in the book and this is the most i think this is the most important thing of all is that the photography is like a small part of it and if it wasn't for the people that i photograph you'd we'd be talking about a book that was a lot of pictures of empty sofas and empty rooms. It's the people in the book that make that book special. I've, I've just fulfilled my part of my debt to them. My debt to them is, is that I fulfill the promise that I made to them, which is trust me and I will work as hard as I can to make sure this story gets amplified. Is that what you want? Yes, that's what I want. I'm tired of no one fucking listening to me. Even my own family doesn't listen to me. My friend, I, I haven't got any friends, so my friends don't listen to me. The government, forget about it. And it's done so much good. You know, that's the thing that um, I'm shivering because it's actually really cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cold, and cold is asleep behind me. Um, I'm shivering, but almost, I'm almost shivering with, with a, a kind of anger as well. I mean, anger has been a really huge part of everything that I've done because. It's like if you if you make work about stuff that you don't really care about, you, you run out of fuel. And I'm so unbelievably driven to to do this for as long as it needs to be done. I fear it will be my whole life. Mm -hmm. I fear that the situation isn't going to change. It isn't going to get better. And as long as it's not getting better, surely we're duty bound if if we have a skill, no matter what it is, to you know put put an arm around people that are being hurt and that's what i find i know we can do it look at the response to the ukraine it's been amazing by the public it's been amazing yeah
I think, uh, you know, I think about the bedroom tax, or I think about some of the measures of austerity. I think about 180,000 attributable deaths to austerity. And what is it? Two, uh, God knows how many COVID deaths are now. All under the same government, and yet pretty much silent from the public. Mm -hmm. Something's missing. And I think that something has been, you know, people using their. Uh, Certainly, photographer, I think, let the side down massively through austerity. The, the first ten years of austerity, you look at you look at the seventies or forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, especially the amount of work that was made. Look at the miners' strike; how much incredible work was made. You try and find a load of work that was made through those ten years of the initial part of austerity, which still mm -hmm. isn't still hasn't ended. By the way, this is the thing. It's going to be even worse post Brexit and post COVID because who do you think is going to get punished the most? Mm -hmm. It ain't going to be the people at the top. It's going to, as always, it's going to be the people at the bottom. Yeah. I, and that your book came out originally in 2017. And in one of the forwards, mm. I think it says something along the lines of, you know, this book will be a memento of this time and these people and it should never be forgotten mm. and in 2017 I, I kind of got the feeling like the person writing it hoped that this yeah. time was coming to an end and you just really think oh yeah. god if only he, at that point he'd known then what was coming on the horizon um mm. the last two years i can only begin to imagine how hard they have been for everybody who every for everybody in that situation and, and all the people in the book mm. um you said that you're working on the second volume of this um yeah is this going to, to be just a continuation of 100 yeah it's going to be called small town and inertia too yeah <laughs> so it's uh yeah it's gonna it's gonna look the same it's gonna feel the same and it is gonna be the same because that is the reality it, the reality for the people in the book is nothing's fucking changed other than it's all got harder. Still no, you know, great media push to support and, and represent these people. So, it, you know, it has to be done. Um, I mean, when the first book came out, I, I mean, I've never stopped working on the stories. It's my community, it's my family, you know, but it's like I'm... An uncle to James is always like my little brother. Um, they're family, you know. I mean, it's weird because I don't have any real social life in offline life. I just have the people in my community that I, that I document and, and work with. Um, most of the people I know to like socially uh, would be online, but my whole life revolves around photography in my community in these stories. And what a privilege! But in the same in the same breath, I really, really, really wish I didn't have to do it. Mm. I really wish these situations didn't exist. And these, you know, you can talk about something. You can say austerity, and people have a general idea of what it means. But until you make it personal, you've got no fucking idea. Until until I, until you learn that. You know, a blind man living on his own because his mum died of malnutrition has no fucking help. 
you've got no idea what's what's happening mm -hmm. you've got no idea what's happening so that's why i think the work is is vital and it's also vital because we've been able to do some really amazing things through it like david's when um um i don't know if you know this story but i'll tell you because you might be interested um one of the first things that i did in terms of fundraising uh was with was with david and um i suppose after the maybe about two years i realized that in every room there was like floor to ceiling paperback books and they were just slowly becoming all covered with dust and cobwebs and i i, I realized that he was like this avid reader and he couldn't couldn't read anything anymore because he's fucking blind um anyway a really long story short I, I find out that you can get this scanner that scans printed material and translates it to audio also discovered that he had access to one but only once a month on a bus route that no one had taught him how to catch the bus so he couldn't use it um <clears throat> so i found out how much one was it was like four grand which is a lot of money um but i said to him look if there's a way that i could raise the money would you want one and look at it from his point of view. He's hearing this voice come out of the black. So, and it, so he was like, yeah, okay. It's obviously humoring me, I think. So I went away, put some put some bits and bobs together, some like um, short films that I've made with Dave and told his story and said what it would mean, found this great site that, uh, unlike Kickstarter, you could raise money for people in your community or for good causes um raised money in four days and he had it two weeks later and it saved his life he would have killed himself i have no doubt in my mind having that device meant he could listen to books could read his mail could check his bills could could um read the newspaper all of a sudden he had something of his life back where the years preceding that he was just lost. I mean, he, Dave, for the listeners, David was in his early 50s when he fell off his bicycle and broke his neck, broke his upper jaw, went into a coma. Um, when he came out of the coma, his, uh, they discovered his optic nerves had been damaged and he was 100% nil light perception blind, which means black, nothing. Not, I need a pair of glasses like you and me have got, couldn't see a thing. Um, and he'd been a really active guy, cycling, walking, a bit of a loner, farm labourer, lived with his mum. So you can imagine what that was like to suddenly, you know, that was like the final punch in a life that had already been really, really hard. So to be able to use the stories, I mean, I call it direct photo action. This, this idea that amplifying the stories is great, but I wanted to do more, and there's been... I, 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 it's not like I keep track or anything, but there's been hundreds of instances where we've been able to do things, um, which might lead me into photo print day, because again, yes. that's an extension of this idea of, who was it I said this the other day? I said it years ago, but um, it's like the Kennedy quote. It's, it's not, uh, do not ask what you can get from your camera, but ask what your camera can you can do you. with your camera yeah, get from, yeah i remember no, that kennedy quote yes yeah. he didn't oh, make no. a lot of sense bless him no it's uh i said it two days ago so uh, don't ask what you can get from your camera ask what you can give with it or something like that mm -hmm. I, i've got it written down somewhere <laughs> uh it's getting late and i'm freezing um 
but that's where this idea of direct fight action came from mm -hmm. in the you know amplifying the stories is, is great and it provides a really important function i think both for society but also individually um but that wasn't enough i i, I thought well i'm in a situation here where i can actually do something to actually change or help try and change try and have some betterment to, to these people that i'm photographing because you know you, you spend 10 years with something you really fucking care about it. and i wanted to do something and I, that's kind of well that coupled with my loathing of nfts and <laughs> the, the uh, super speculative capitalist fucking obsession with selling nothing for thousands and thousands of pounds and yeah um yeah i wanted to make a day that we really celebrate prints and fit the physical print which i think is a beautiful beautiful thing um so i came up with this idea photo print day where it's literally one it was going to be in september is going to be in september in fact now it's got so big it's going to be a three-day event in september where basically you you make a print and it can be anything from a photocopy to the highest quality archive print or as some people did on well what i'll tell you about in a second it could be a fanzine or it could even be a book because technically they are printed pages which i thought was genius i love people that find loops like that um and what basically what you do is you, it could be any size it could be the size of a postage stamp or it could be the size of a bus it doesn't matter the choice is the photographers you put it up and basically somebody comes to you and says oh i like that i'll make a 10 pound donation to a charity that we both agree on and then you send them the print it's that simple so it doesn't exclude people that can't afford and the photographer can give as much or as, as little as they want and it's open to anyone be it a kid with a camera phone that can go and get it printed out in a supermarket or it could be open to the most well-known most famous photographer on the planet the idea is to get as many people involved to raise a large amount of money that way rather than charging you know five thousand pounds of print and doing and selling five um so i had this idea and then the war in ukraine broke out and i like everybody else i imagine was horrified I felt very impotent and enraged about the situation and I thought okay so I, I had this idea seven days ago <laughs> uh, let's do one now so we had a photo print day in, in support of Ukraine and it said, uh, importantly um, I got some great on the ground information about charities in Ukraine that really needed help and support orphanages and a few other things and it was a huge success we raised well over twenty thousand pounds i mean i lost count it's, as you can imagine there's so many people that responded so many people did it it brought photographers from all over the world together it was a wonderful way of people seeing new work um and again it's just direct photo action what can you do with your print even if you think that when I, mean, I had a few people say well no one's going to buy my print i said well okay well then buy it off yourself yeah. and then that can be, you can be donating to the charity yeah uh as it was i don't think anybody went without went without uh somebody somebody doing it because i suppose the clever thing about it is is the person that's buying the print doesn't feel like they're buying a print they feel like they're donating 10 pounds to charity which of course they are and then they get a free print which yeah. is like win 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 yeah um 
so it was a huge success so yeah looking forward to the one in september which will be three days because we want it to be global um want it in every country and it's, it's really simple the photographer in this is the person that decides the print uh, who pays the postage all of that i mean there'll be there'll be details i'll send you links and stuff uh, with all that like the something like five rules it's pretty pretty bomb proof pretty idiot proof it had to be i i came up with it so <laughs> rule number one everyone talks about photo print day yeah <laughs> or uh, my, my dad's favorite rule is kiss keep it simple stupid mm -hmm. so the rules are really really simple it's, it's so simple to follow yeah um but what what better way to kind of um celebrate photography than actually using it to do something good yeah you know? absolutely absolutely and it was lovely seeing just all the activity around it on the ukraine photo print day um so many people you know to varying degrees very sense, but people just jumping on board for as you said an idea that came together in essentially no time at all and oh, i'm it was ridiculous yeah i mean i, was... I had the idea for the photo print day in september seven days before yeah seven days later war broke out and then that following weekend we did it yeah and so really there was like 48 hours notice and to raise that amount of money and have that many people involved september is going to be yeah really good really one good. of the things i really like about this is the way that you have you've created come up with this idea and created this set of rules and then basically handed it off to the community said okay now you go and make yeah. this make this your thing but you, yeah. like you do this you you're not trying to sit on the top of no thank tree you in a great big throne <laughs> saying right everybody no. everybody do what i'm saying do that. it's like no. no like here's the idea no. because just want to raise as much well, money well I, I really like that like old punk diy aesthetic it's like well we haven't got a magazine okay so let's make one out of folk let's go get a photocopier and slap together a fanzine and do it like that i like that kind of do-it-yourself thing and i also like the idea that you know if it was like really formal and we said right we're gonna have this charity only and you can only have this and you can da, 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 that um i think that's why these things kind of fail really this is it was just a call to what i think is the best community there is which is the photographic community very supportive very kind very caring i love it to pieces um it was really just a call out to the community to say look you can all do this but you've got to be responsible you, essentially if you participate you're the one in, in in control of your of your little situation in in this uh, like bigger bigger picture and everybody did it perfect there was no, no argument no one fell out and there's hundreds and hundreds of people that did it mm. and all i heard back and if you follow um at photo print day on twitter or instagram just have a look at the comments people are still talking to each other nicely there's no arguments there's no like you know uh, there's no it was almost like an egoless day which mm -hmm. was something really spectacular to behold there was no well i'm more important than you so yeah so yeah you're absolutely right this is not something it, it's designed but no one sits at the top of it yeah. less of all me i just had an idea and that's it and another just really nice thing about it is that um, people, people like me, people who have never thought about selling their work would mm. never think about selling their work. Uh, but on this day, you go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this to raise money. And you go, somebody bought a picture of mine. 
And yeah. it, it doesn't matter whether they bought people... it because they were doing it to donate. Like somebody bought one of my... I'm now a... Well, they still, they still chose. <laughs> exactly. Right? They still chose. There, there was a lot of prints available, a lot of prints. But someone, someone still had to choose yours. Mm. So I think it's okay to feel that kind of... I mean, if if a happy accident of photo print days, people get their first ever taste of making a print mm. or offering one up for sale, even though in this instance it's it's in exchange for a donation, it's still a little... You know, we we start this conversation with the idea of like chaotic doorways just opening up and knowing when to recognize them and maybe take that opportunity. And if if one person involved in photo print day suddenly gets a taste for making prints, what a, I'm more than happy for that to happen. If someone gets the idea that they maybe could have a little bit more confidence in their work or find another photographer that they really like, these are all positive things. There's no kind of like negative. Yeah. And it's also not a competition. You can have one print. You can offer up a trillion it's all down to the individual participant you know um if you I offer mean, up a trillion you may not sell all of them no but wouldn't it be great if they did it would be pretty great <laughs> my, yeah. my goal is though to get you know i'd love to see um i think i worked it out that if in 10 years we have a million people doing this we'll raise 10 million pounds in a day mm -hmm. or over the three days and judging by the reaction to the ukraine print sale day that's doable yeah there's a lot of photographers there's a lot of people making making photographs and you know in september basically you can choose whatever charity you want you can see my dog she's just hey, um, she's a she's beautiful she's, she's, she's an absolutely me. beautiful dog all right you okay you want to go to bed I'm tired <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think that's the good thing i think given how good the response was for the ukraine um, print day um the fact that people now have time to really take ownership of it and think about it. And as you said, choose yeah. which charities they want to do and choose yeah. how they want it. Um, I'm really excited about it. And it, when in September is it? Uh, it's September now, I think. September the 2nd, the 3rd and the 4th. Coda, don't play the piano. Go away. Um, <laughs> yeah. I moved it from the first, so it's the September the second, the third, the fourth, because that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I believe. Yeah, I'll be jumping back on my. Um... Oh my god! All right, I'll be jump. I'll jump. I'll be. See, I went from having a Twitter for myself and an Insta for myself to suddenly I've got like eight social media accounts now. <laughs> so um, yeah, um, I've let photo print day just kind of cool down because mm -hmm. there was a lot of work uh on, on the first day <laughs> yes it was wasn't it yes um uh okay oh my god really really little, um, this not yeah. the tall little dog is dead <laughs> yeah, I, well i did i did tell you hang on uh, let me move that so you can see the, the oh, beautiful off. beautiful big dog i'm i'm being i'm being told to wrap it up I yes think. very um, much but, so if people follow um, at Photo Print Day, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you want to talk? Whisper. Whisper. Okay. See you. <laughs> She'll whisper. If, speak. Speak. <laughs> Good girl. Back up. Good girl. All right. There you go. Um, 
oh, she's not going to let me say no, anymore. That's she's going to. But if you follow at Photo Print Day on yeah. Twitter and Instagram, Twitter mostly, that has all the rules, that have all the details, that have all the available prints. It's it's basically the home for everybody. So all the work gets shared there. That's where you see the work. Um, and yeah, there'll be there'll be some announcements in the next couple of weeks. Wonderful stuff. And where else should people be going now? I think because I saw a recent tweet that. Um, I don't know whether they're all gone or whether you're at the very last few copies of the current run of Small Town Inertia. Are there still copies available? Uh, no, Small Town Inertia, both both editions sold out. So both. we've had a hardback and we've had both paperbacks. That You can't find Small Town Inertia. Unless you go to somewhere like eBay, I think there's, there's somewhere on eBay that's selling it for about $12, $12.50, which isn't all right. Yeah. Um, I do have a couple of books out of Cafe Royale books at the moment, mm -hmm. but that's almost all sold out as well. I think there's about eight copies left, I'm afraid. But you might want to go to um, at Cafe Royale books. I believe they've got some left. My own personal allocation is almost gone. Yeah. But uh, if you go to um, at Cafe Royale books, they've got copies, I believe. Awesome. And do you have any idea when volume two is going to be ready? Well, like, like we mentioned off, off air, I've been in lockdown isolation since it started, obviously with a high risk mother and father. And a lot of the people that I photograph are high risk. Um, I took uh, the decision with everybody, spoke with everybody about it as well, that we'd keep each other safe. Um, and COVID doesn't look like it's going anywhere soon especially with another variant that looks quite nasty happening uh in despite what our government tells us you just look at the amount of infections and the rise in the last weeks um so the the the, the easy answer to a question uh although i've given very long answers to absolutely everything i'm afraid <laughs> this is what happens when you take a year off talking um is when it's safe you know, in the meantime, I'll continue working on the story that I'm doing with my mother, um, mm. which is probably the most intense story I've ever done. Um, but yeah, book two's half finished. I, I'd hopefully, if not late this year, late next year. Yeah, I'd say. Where? What's the um, name of your blog? Where can people go to your blog and yeah. okay. Twitter and Instagram stuff? Okay, so um, Instagram is at Small Town Inertia. Um, Coda, can you s stop? She's okay. Have you ever had a dog groom you? Oh, groom you? <laughs> she kind of nip she's defleeing me, is what she's oh, doing. She's so she's nibbling me like there's someone's got to do it, Jim. It's better than yeah. not your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Small Town Inertia is www. <laughs> All right, is uh, she's tickling me now? Is www.smalltowninertia.co.uk, or you can go to J A Mortram, which is M O R T R A M, dot co dot uk, and get a free digital copy of the book Small Town Inertia. Um, and my Twitter is at J A Mortram, uh, same spelling as before. My Inbox is always open. 
can you can you see how much she wants to go? Yeah, she definitely feels you've been podcasting for I'm long so enough. I'm so sorry. If this was on TV, it would make one of those um, those bloopers, wouldn't it? We definitely get 250 quid for this. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, pal. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, man. You've asked some fantastic questions. Uh, I really, Jim, really appreciate that. It, it's been wonderful having you on. And like I said, I cannot. We'll put all the links in the show notes and just go and check out this book. It's, it's a really, it's a beautiful, it's a dignified book. It's an incredibly moving book, and I'm really looking forward to, to volume two to seeing people who I now care about and how they're getting on because Thank that's you. what this book does. Um, keep keep doing the great work Jim. um Thank i'm you. really glad I you are and, and look after yourself as well that's also very important. well uh, i've actually learned to do that i've actually learned that um oh man see how can i not look after myself when i've got this gigantic wolf doing this <laughs> all right babe. all right um yeah just to, to close this this might help because I, I i learned that um if you run an engine flat out don't be surprised if it blows up. So I changed my working process. So now what I do is, um, well, COVID permitting, um, I I don't do everything at the same time. So I, I don't edit the same day that I shoot. I don't share on social media the day that I edit and shoot. So I used to I used to literally go from working all night, looking after mum with loads of seizures, get two hours kip, go straight out to shoot, come straight back, edit then spends what night I could showing on social media and just did that for 10 years. Looking back, it was insane, but it was absolutely necessary. Um, so now what I've learned to do is, you know, just have a, have a little bit of R and R. And I think it's really important. I used to think I was failing or I was, um, I felt guilty for doing it. And I'm, I'm literally talking about maybe taking an hour to watch a movie or something, or half a movie, because I never get to watch a full one. Um, but I'm no use to anyone if, I, if I'm basket case. No one is. So it is really important to um, understand that pacing yourself is, is really important. Don't eat that. <laughs> Not you. Kona. All right. 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> You've made your second appearance on a podcast. Yes. Well done. Sorry. It's Jim. It's been an absolute delight. I am going to leave you Thanks, to sir. return to your dog. Thank you again Thank so you. much. And I hope, I hope we'll get to speak to you again nearer September. Um, Cause I'm really excited Absolutely. about it. I'm really excited. Well, about I'd like to talk to everybody else. I'm really sorry that, there's been bionic eyes and migraines. I know, I know. I, I, I'm yeah. sorry about that too, but also it meant I very selfishly just got to chat to you myself. So, you know. <laughs> Any, anytime, anytime, anytime. Awesome. Anytime. Jim, thank you Thanks. so much. Lovely chatting thank to you, you and hopefully speak to you again soon. Mm.